Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course. And we're joined today by a special guest um, uh, to take things um, towards the end of the war in the Netherlands. Uh, James, who have we got today? Well, we've got a Dutch retired schoolteacher and historian, Hans Onderwater. And Hans has, uh, funny enough, he's actually written about um, 600 Squadron. He's written about two Squadron, the Royal Air Force. He knows a thing or two about the Royal Air Force, it's fair to say. But he's also an expert on the history of the occupation of the Netherlands, but also that kind of rather forgotten episode, Operation Manor and Chown Hunt, um, which is, of course, the relief operation at the very end of the war. Uh, bombers coming over and dropping supplies to the starving Dutch people. So, um, you know, we're, you and I are, we're, we're big fans of the Dutch and we're big fans of, of looking at the Second World War in, in the Netherlands and the Low Countries. But I don't know about you, but, but you know, um, Manor and Chowhund is is not something I'm particularly familiar with. I mean, I, I know the essence, but I don't know the details. So. Hello there, Hans. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Now, this, this is uh, one of those examples of... Um, uh, a story from the end of the war that in the sort of uh, in the the, the the kind of standard account that British people tell themselves of the Second World War, the, the last years, there's D-Day, then there's Arnhem, 
And then the war ends in May 1945. Yeah, and it's, of course, it's Arnhem that causes all the problems for the Dutch in the months to come. Well, yes, I was, that's exactly what I was just going to say, is that, that, that at least people know about Arnhem, but they don't know about the, about the, the, the fallout from that operation and, and the, what, what happens to, to Dutch people. So just, just briefly, take us, take us through the, um, uh, the consequences of the Arnhem operation for the Dutch civilians, and then we'll get on to, uh, on to Manor and Chowham. Excellent. Well, the thing was that when the Allies decided to carry out Operation Market Garden, the Dutch government in exile uh, told the Dutch railway workers to go on strike, which meant that the trains in Holland couldn't run anymore unless the Germans would import a lot of German railway workers to do it for them. Right. This railway strike after the failure of Market Garden uh, caused the Germans to be so angry that they would deny the Dutch further transportation of food from the agricultural eastern part of the Netherlands to the densely populated west. Then, unfortunately, the winter of 44-45, just remember the Battle of the Belch, was a very harsh winter. And people in the large cities in Holland who, first of all, couldn't buy any food anymore unless you uh, spent half of your family fortune on the black market, had no food and the soup kitchens were no longer to supply the people more than uh, potato soup, sugar beets or tulip bulbs. And uh, that was uh, when the Dutch started dying at the rate of about uh, 3,000 a week. Jesus. And that was by the end of December uh, that uh, Queen Wilhelmina sent uh, a plea to uh, King George saying that if the... Uh, Allies do not do something drastically. Uh, it might very well be uh, the liberation of corpses rather than the liberation of people. Jesus, I mean, three thousand a week is a hell of a lot, and that's in December. It, yeah, especially the people, let's say, in what today what we call the lower or the deprived classes, the people who had, by the way, used all the wood in their house to light their fires, the people who had to. Uh, sell their belongings to get some extra food on the black market and of course the people who lived in the big cities who had no small gardens or what have you and who were totally defend depending on food distribution that's absolutely that's entirely shocking i mean uh, we, we, we we've we've talked about uh, market garden a lot and um uh because after all the arnhem area is evacuated isn't it so there's people just as well as a shortage of food there's dispersed people so yeah, well, it was not an evacuation. Uh, you know, the people of Arnhem were evacuated as a deed of revenge yeah. after yeah. Uh, Market Garden. And then, of course, the whole city was ransacked by the Germans and all the furniture and everything they found inside the houses was taken to the Ruhr area to supply the Germans over there. I mean, the, the clearing out of houses in Western Europe was absolutely legion, but um, I hadn't appreciated they'd done that in Arnhem as well. Oh, Yes. In Arnhem, they, they moved about uh, 22,000 people uh, to the countryside. And then the Germans came with lorries and they just... Uh, Took everything. Yeah, they went from number one to number 100 and they emptied everything. There was nothing left. And of course, uh, in revenge, the members of the SS Armored Division who had been fighting in Arnhem 
uh, threw a lot of uh, phosphorus grenades into the houses Jeez. to burn them down. Uh, uh, so as well as this sort of layer of oppression, there's essentially a, a, a deliberate famine uh, enforced on, on Holland by the Germans. Yeah, Seis uh, Inquart, who was then uh, the Reichskommissar or the governor of Holland, uh, called it a punishment. Right. In fact, that was one of the indictments that caused him to be hung in uh, hanged in the in Nuremberg and yep. that was that particular order that he gave to uh, punish the people by depriving them of their foodstuff. Is this is this Zeisinka? Yeah. Yeah, Zeisinka. Yeah. He was it, it's a very funny story that I would like to share with you. When the negotiations for the food drops took part, uh Commodore Geddes who was in charge of the planning of the whole operation told me that General Beadle Smith, who was there as the chief of staff of Eisenhower, told Seis Inquart that he might as well surrender because he was on the blacklist of war criminals and that he might likely be shot. And Seis <laughs> Inquart, through his interpreter, said, that leaves me cold. Whereafter, uh, Beadle Smith said, it will in due course. <laughs> so that's a, I, that's I a great report. A, great yeah, I, have a, I have a letter from uh, Air Commodore Andrew Geddes in which he wrote uh, to his family when he was in uh, post-war Germany for a while and he said it was very a very far-sighted be- Beadle Smith who promised sizing <laughs> what was, was going to happen and he kept his promise. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. But Hans, so, tell me, I mean, you know, if, if you've got 3,000 people dying of starvation a week at the end of December, you know, what's it like by the end of January and the end of February? By the end of January, we had uh, some 14,000 casualties. Also, uh, there was a slight uh, improvement because the Swedes sent five uh, vessels from uh, Gothenburg to Holland with uh, margarine and flour and all kind of stuff so that in January every Dutchman in the occupied territories received one free loaf of bread. Right. And I remember my mother telling me that she has never eaten anything so delicious as the (laughs) Swedish bread. Yeah, no, I can well imagine. My but I mean, God. you know, but but the the relief operations by the RF, I mean, that, they don't happen until the end of April, do they? Well, the thing was that, uh, first of all, the Germans would not even uh, enter in discussions because they uh, didn't trust uh, the RAF and, of course, the Allies didn't trust the Germans. The thing was that the in order to drop the food, and already in January there had been trials at North Killingholm, uh, the the trials showed that you had to fly at about 200 to 500 feet at minimum airspeed, full flaps, uh, wheels down, before you could drop your foot safely so that it didn't explode upon impact. So uh, they would uh, have to fly very slowly over enemy-occupied territory with the German 88 and 20 millimeter machine guns and guns still very well in operation and well you know how do you trust uh, a people that have been breaking promises since 1933 yeah 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 and that was the whole atmosphere eisenhower was not willing to send extra troops into western holland because he was afraid that in the uh, the flooded areas of western holland his tanks would get stuck yep. and he didn't want to uh, to lose too many people basically uh, by saving people from starvation. In fact, Eisenhower 
is said to have uh, to have said, uh, "I'm not going to risk my soldiers' lives for hungry people," wow. which was a tough decision, but an understandable decision. Yes, because if you defeat the Germans, you you the war ends, and then you can deal with it. Whereas if yeah, you prolong the, the war, uh, the, yeah. yeah, the first Canadian army already had hundreds of thousands of tons of uh, army rations uh, laying ready in storage facilities near the town of Setogenbosch and the town of Os. But they were not able to enter occupied territory until the the agreement had been concluded on the 1st of May. And that is when the Canadians came in with Operation Faust. But Geddes decided that uh, they were going to drop food anyway, so even two days before uh, the the agreement with the Germans was signed, uh, the RAF already started dropping on the 29th of April, which was very risky, but there was because there was no agreement. So, so ne- they've been nego- trying to negotiate with with the Germans to set up um, uh, these drops. How how was that process embarked on? Who? Who, who who did who approached the Germans on behalf of the Allies? Did they go? Did they go straight to Sinkvart, or did they? No, work, no, go- no. Uh, first of all, there was a very strong resistance movement in Holland, which had excellent radio communications with the UK, and they had already um, told the people in England or in the UK that things were very dire in Holland. So then um, the the British said that they were willing not to negotiate but to converse <laughs> with the Germans about uh, an attempt to do something for the Dutch. Then Seis Inquart said on the 21st of April that he would be willing to enter into negotiations whether the Allies would be allowed to drop yes or no. And the answer from the Allies was... We are not going to do that. We are willing to talk to you, but only to tell you how we are going to do it. Yeah. So they didn't give the um, the, the Germans any room in the decision-making process. Well, Air Commodore Geddes, who had been involved as uh, Air Commodore Plans in the 2nd Tactical Air Force since 1943, and who was an experienced uh, pilot... Uh, was sent from Brussels, from headquarters 2nd Tactical Air Force to Reims, to see Eisenhower, and Eisenhower said, Geddes, I want you to feed the Dutch within a week. And that was on the 23rd of April. So uh, uh, then uh, they sent a message to the Germans that they were willing to talk, but not in uh, German-occupied territory, but in no man's land, which was really... Canadian occupied. So they, yeah. uh, Geddes flew from Brussels, where he had his headquarters, to Nijmegen, to the uh, uh, airstrip of, of Klaus, and he was taken by car to Achterveld, together with some other officers, and the meeting was presided over by Sir Francis de Guingamp, the French-Canadian general who was the chief of staff to Montgomery. Yeah. And so they had a first meeting on the 28th of April, uh, where in the end the Germans said, well, we are willing to allow you to fly over uh, occupied territory, but uh, you are not to be armed, uh, you are not to take photographs, etc., etc. <laughs> and, uh, and then the response of Sir Freddy de Ginga was, well, if we help, we help, we don't need you for that. It, it, and Geddes, of course, 
was sitting at the same table. I got pictures of him sitting during the meeting. And he said, there were no negotiations. We told them what to do. And if they said something, we list, listened to them. And then we said, no. Gosh, how and incredible. And he said, first of all, the Germans knew very well. And that was one of the things that helped them across the bridge, that if they wouldn't agree, every German officer involved in the process would be considered a war criminal. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these German, let's say, generals and colonels were not Nazis. They were Prussians. Uh, they did not swear an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler as chairman of the Nazi party, but he was the German leader. And that was, of course, the thing after the war when the Germans said, I wasn't a Nazi, I was a German. Yeah. yeah. And these officers were very keen not to be seen as war criminals, and that made them reluctant uh, to, to give too much obst obstructions. So then anyway, um, they first wanted to drop on the 28th of April, but then the weather over the North Sea was so atrocious that uh, the aircraft that had taken off uh, returned to the UK within half an hour. Yeah. And so then they came the next day and they started. The first drops were at Weilhaven Aerodrome south of Rotterdam. But then they couldn't take the food off the aerodrome because there were mines all over the aerodrome. And that, of course... Was, was, were lethal wooden mines that you couldn't find with a mine detector. Uh, so then they decided to use other places of which Geddes already had a lot of aerial photographs that had been made by Spitfires of the photo reconnaissance units of the RAF. And then basically on the 30th of April, uh, Seiss Inqua joined the meeting. And what he really did was listen and object and then do what he was told. In fact, it was very funny. I have a picture of Seiss Inquart leaving the school where the meeting took place. Um, the order had been from Sir Francis de Gingan and that had been supported by Beadlesmith. If German officers give the military salute like this, you can salute back. If they give the Hitler greeting, you ignore them. So there's this beautiful picture of Seiss Inquart walking out of the school, raising his right arm, and you see all the Allied officers turning their back on him. Amazing. Uh, the other thing was that during the meeting there was a luncheon prepared, and all the Allied officers came together for a luncheon in a huge mess tent outside the church, between the school and the church, and the Germans were giving a carton box with sandwiches and a big can full of tea with with some uh, uh, with some cups and that was it <laughs> and the germans really thought they were going to have a business lunch yeah 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 that's amazing yeah. isn't it my and goodness. the other wonderful thing is that on the first of may geddes had to go to the grebeberg which was uh, also no man's land in the south of of uh, utrecht and he had to hand over the uh, the agreement that had been countersigned by beadle smith and take in the ones that had been signed by General Blaskowitz, the German commander-in-chief, and there he met uh, a German officer, his name was von Massow, and he was a very cocky paratrooper. Geddes uh, presented him with a cigarette, which the German uh, accepted, and uh, Geddes suddenly said to, uh, to this cocky German, by the way, don't worry about your brother, we backed him yesterday in Kassel. Because Famasov's brother was a major general in the German army and he had just been captured by the Americans 
And Gedda said, you should have seen the German turning from pink into grey. <laughs> so he, he jumped into the sidecar of his uh, BMW motorbike and he roared off and then came back because he forgot to take his Smyster submachine gun with him. <laughs> and Geddes could tell you these little stories with so much sense of humour, it yeah, was yeah. really lovely. And then you said, are you sure, Andrew? And he said, well, by the way, uh, Captain Hill, who was with me, took a picture of it. Gosh. How fantastic. Gosh. So, you know, I, I've written two books about uh, the food drops now, and I just don't know what to do with my photographs because I, I can fill maybe three or four more, mostly because they come off, uh, from uh, Andrew Geddes's personal archives, because he was always carrying a camera with him, which he captured in North Africa when they shot down a German Messerschmitt, and in the cockpit Geddes found a Leica, and he said, I never had a better camera in my life. I... It was a German camera. My yeah, goodness. yeah, no, of course. Well, um, you know what they say about, about, about German uh, optics. Um, Hans, what was Bomber Command's attitude to, to this series of that's operations? Very, that's very interesting, But that's for, because the first day, they were so reluctant. I remember Graham Bramble, whose lang he was in 150 Squadron, and his Lancaster had the name Bramble's Shambles, because uh, <laughs> <coughs> uh, Graham was a rather naughty man. And he, uh, he said, when we were told by the CO that he, he took off from Hemswell near Lincoln, he said, the CO said, you're going to drop food over the Netherlands, you're going to fly at 500 feet. And he said, that was the first time in my life that I said to a group captain, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, group captain, the group captain said, excuse me. Uh, and then Graham said, uh, sorry, say, I didn't hear you, sir. You can't be serious. So they were very reluctant. So anyway, they went because they were, of course, under uh, military laws and stuff. But when they flew over Holland and they saw people standing on the rooftops waving Dutch flags and homemade Union Jacks and people uh, waving at them, they suddenly realized that, uh, that they were really giving salvation to the people. And some people had even, and I have photos of that, written on the rooftops, tobacco please. So the air crew would get around at the end of the day and make little parcels which they put on, uh, on, on little parachutes that the rear gunner would drop out of his turret once they came over the same area the next day. And then, of course, you must realize that for the Dutch people, not of today, because most of them are dead now, meeting these veterans in 1983, 85, and then every five years, was such an exciting and, 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 and such an emotional event because that was the first day they could actually see the food droppers, which they call the flying grosses. <laughs> the other thing was every time in Holland when the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight Lancaster comes over, there is just, uh, let's say, almost a typhoon of emotion wow. when the people hear the sound of the Merlin engines. Gosh, gosh, it's clear, isn't it? Isn't Al? Isn't it interesting that it's just that that means a completely different thing in a way? I mean, it's still yeah. it's still the sound of freedom and all the rest of it, and British bulldog spirit, blah blah blah, and all that kind of stuff. But but it means a different thing in Holland, doesn't it? That, that's what's yeah. so interesting. It does. It does indeed. In fact, uh, some of the elderly people I interviewed for my two books said to me, "We knew we were going to be liberated. We only didn't know whether we would be alive when it happened." Mm. And then, of course, just imagine my mother told me uh, they got her first uh, food on the 
2nd of May, because it took a, a while to distribute it, mm. she had no clue what to do with egg powder. <laughs> right. No, so they just ate it and almost choked at yeah, it yeah. and it came out of her nose. They had uh, things like like biscuits, you know, th that were dropped in tins. To them, they were cookies. Yeah. Uh, things like meat and vegetables. In fact, my mother still believes that spam is the best meat there is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember we have a, in Holland, uh, we have a factory and they make a similar thing called smack, which is a ridiculous <laughs> name. When my wife and I were in, that is in England, yeah. Yeah, we, went to, we went to Tesco and we bought a tin with 12 tins, or a, a box with 12 tins of spam in it. And we took it to my mother and gave it for her birthday she must have kept it for a year and only when very good friends came the tin was open with a lot of ceremony cut into little pieces and she had these little toothpicks with a dutch flag on it she would put them on the pieces of of spam and use it on her birthday as a special treat for her friends we need to take a quick break right now we'll see you in a moment Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Operation Manor is the British bit, isn't it? And Chow Hound is, uh, is, is the American bit. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Chow Hound. The Americans didn't drop until the 1st of May because uh, General Eaker, uh, I think it was, was very reluctant to allow his pilots to fly low uh, over enemy-occupied territory. Right. And I think the British had much more experience in what I call risky flying yeah and um, the uh, in fact the Americans were the only one who uh, who had casualties during the food drops oh, really because there were three areas where you were not allowed to fly over and that was the hook of Holland Imuiden and Den Helder they were naval bases and they were kind of uh, let's say fortresses well who flew over a German uh, naval base on, on the 6th of May 1945, an American B-17, and it was promptly shot down. Gosh. What was he? Um, was he lost? I mean, or... or... No, he, uh, he, 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 they managed to fly as close as about 20 miles east of Lowestoft. Yeah. And that's where the pilot tried to, dis to ditch. Uh, the ditching was a failure. It cartwheeled, and only three out of the 14 passengers survived because this pilot had taken ground staff with him because he thought it was a kind of holiday trip. Uh, the plane was badly overloaded. Uh, it was all very illegal and in the end it was all treated very hush-hush. But I managed to find the, uh, the papers about it and it turned out that the pilot who killed was uh, posthumously court-martialed. Really? Yeah. How extraordinary. And then of course uh, it said in the end that uh, the general court-martial decided that since Lieutenant Skirman had lost his life in his illegal flight. He would not be prosecuted further on. Well, you know, that's uh, rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You know? so that's the military for you. Yes, rules and regulations. We don't, uh, in Holland, we have this saying, we don't call the Americans the Germans from far away. <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> but then uh, the, uh, the funny thing is I did a few lectures in the United States about the food drops. And it's so difficult to convince 
the Americans, first of all, that the Lancaster could uh, carry more load than the B-17, yeah. that's one thing, that the Americans only uh, carried one-third of the total, uh, total 12,000 tons, because the Americans, like everywhere, if they have been there with five people, they liberated the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have to tell you that. You know it as well as I do. Um, I mean, in fact, it were the Americans who liberated the Falkland Islands. <laughs> because uh, Ronald Reagan said, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, that is generally a feeling in Holland. Because as we all know in the Netherlands, we were liberated by the 1st Canadian Army and by the Polish Armored Division of General Matzek and some British unit. The Americans just hit the south of the Netherlands and when my wife and I go to American functions, they're always telling that they liberate the Netherlands. <laughs> and and the same thing goes for Operation Chowhound. Of course, their 32% of the total amount of food is significant, and we are very grateful. But it was the British who did the drops two days before they really could have done it. It was a British air commodore who planned it, who negotiated it. And the Americans just followed two days later when the Canadians were also allowed to bring in food uh, with their lorries. Yeah. So, understand me, I am not trying to diminish the effort of the Americans, but I don't want it to be bigger than it is. And therefore, uh, I've written that in my books and among some of the American veterans, I'm a little bit of a no-no. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear, yeah, that's no good. We can't have that. I mean, it, but it isn't, you know, generally speaking, the Netherlands isn't much in the sphere of um, American, you know, the front. They're, they're sort of, uh, they're further south, aren't they? So, you know, it's completely understandable that they wouldn't have that much of a part in it. I mean, obviously, they played their part in Market Garden and so on, but um, I, it's interesting, though. I, I find it, I think it's fascinating. Al and I were in, in Arnhem a, um, a year and a half ago, 18 months ago. And I I hadn't been there before, so this was a completely new trip for me. And I was totally overwhelmed by the amount of air, British airborne flags that were hanging from houses and and the, and how serious they treat it. Considering, you know, the failure of Market Garden led to them having their houses, homes destroyed and ripped up, and you know, the whole thing was a yeah, failure. Yeah, but that, there's this, excuse me, there's a saying in Holland: it is not your success that counts. But the trouble you take to to try it, and uh, you know because a lot of if you if you read some of the uh, the books of some of the British paratroopers, uh, the Dutch uh, were hiding uh, British paratroopers up until the liberation in their houses. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the ones that were taken to the south and taken through the marshes to liberated areas. <clears throat> uh, if you uh, if you lay, read the book The Grey Goose of of uh, Arnhem and some of the other books, uh, the Dutch went beyond themselves to help the paratroopers. Even though uh, we never talk about their defeat, we talk about their attempt. Yeah, and it's 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 a bit like uh, we do not really care that you weren't successful, but we were very grateful that you did it, and that is why, for instance, in the Netherlands. All the graves of Allied uh, soldiers who are buried in Holland are adopted by schools. I know, I think it's amazing. We have, yeah, we have one single Australian Spitfire pilot, Jack Dawson Green, buried in my village. He flew with 603 Squadron, City of Edinburgh Squadron. Mm -hmm. For the last 12 years, the, the highest grade of an elementary school takes care 
of his grave. They clean it, they weed it, they go there on his birthday, they go there on the day he die, died, and they go there the day before Christmas. And it's all a voluntary job, and you have to really tell people, no, we, we cannot have three schools <coughs> Sorry, adopting the grave. One school is enough. In 1947, Dutch Parliament passed a law where it says that it would be wrong for an Allied soldier to be buried in a foreign country. So every grave in Holland is territory. Jack Dawson Green in Badendrecht is not buried in the Netherlands. He's buried in Australia. Because that that little plot where he lies is Australia. Gosh, how extraordinary. If you go to Margraten, where the Americans have their graves, legally you should bring your passport. <laughs> because you're entering American territory. Yeah. Uh, we are quite happy that Donald Trump has left because, like Iceland, he might have wanted to buy it. <laughs> but, uh, but like the Canadian, the huge Canadian cemetery in uh, in Holton is Canadian territory. Yeah. And of course, we take care of it, we clean it, we maintain it. But for their their say, the boys' sake, it's their homeland. In fact, the the family of Jack Dawson Green came to Holland with special permission to bring earth from Australia with them in the plane and they spread it over his grave. Gosh. Amazing. And uh, it, it was a pretty emotional event, but on the other hand, we think he's entitled to that. Hmm. And, uh, well, you know, we have funny so people, the Dutch. We love the British unless we lose uh, playing football against you, but that's another story. <laughs> um, I think we are more upset about Brexit than anyone else. I, I think a lot of Dutch people would have said, well, if the UK does a Brexit, let's join the UK. But well, <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, we, 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 in Holland, uh, British people uh, are very well liked. In fact, L is my neighbor and we have, living next, we have lived next to each other since 19, uh, 1996. Yeah. And we haven't had uh, five minutes of quarrel and he made me drink beer rather than a pilsner and, and, and lager <laughs> so so we we, we we are very happy with our relationship with the uk and well it's, it's said, lovely I to served. hear that it's lovely to hear that and i i've got to say whenever um whenever i'm i've been in the netherlands i mean that comes across loud and clear and it's and it's and it's really lovely but but tell me um do, i mean do you think there is is there a kind of wide appreciation of the second world war and and I mean, do school children? I mean, I know they they tend graves and things, but but is it studied at school? Yes, it's um, let's say in the the uh, in the period from uh, early April till the May holidays, because the uh, fourth of May is our War Memorial Day, and the fifth of May is our Liberation Day. So then we have a, like a, a fortnight holiday, but in the five weeks before that, in every school in Holland. Children are taught about the Second World War. Uh, for instance, speaking for myself, I go to schools and I give lectures about the Second World War in Barendrecht, in our village. Right. So that when children ride a bicycle past a monument or a building, they know what the significance of the building is as far as the Second World War is concerned. Every year, our local newspaper publishes a kind of extra paper with stories about our town during the Second World War. So, yes, it's very alive in Holland, yes. It's very alive. It's amazing. I can't think of it. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we Brits, we're known for kind of 
banging on and on about about the Second World War, but but it's just you know we've had these discussions over the last few weeks. I mean, it is taught in schools to a certain extent, you know, and certain individual teachers, history teachers who are particularly interested in it, you know, they can get away with teaching certain aspects of it. But generally speaking, what what they're taught is the Holocaust, rise of the Nazis, that kind of thing. You know, it stops of a little bit of home front stuff at primary school. But the actual yeah, course the of the Second World War is just not really taught at all. Well, you know, um, um, to speak for myself, when I was studying history, my professor said, why would you be interested in the history of the Battle of Stalingrad if you do not know what happened in your own village during the war? And that's a kind of healthy nationalism, if I may call it that way, yeah. that you have to try and learn and also try and teach about the Second World War in your own country. And then, of course, you cannot evade uh, uh, subjects like collaboration. Yeah. There were more Dutchmen in the SS during the war than in the resistance. Mm. We had a whole Dutch SS division called Division Viking, mm -hmm. fighting at the Russian front. Fortunately, most of them stayed there for the rest of their life, but that's another story. Yeah. But don't forget... There was a lot of collaboration in Holland. Don't think well, some of your fellow countrymen think that every Dutchman was in the resistance. No, 90% of the Dutch tried to live through the war without getting cut into their fingers. There was a small percentage who actively uh, was in violent or in religious resistance or paper resistance or helping Jews or helping people who didn't want to go to Germany for forced labor. And there was a small but relevant minority who actually were collaborators. I mean, we never had to face any of that. That's the other reason it's a different... Our, our, our British approach to that history is completely different. We never had yeah. to deal with any of any of these things. No, I think you should read the book SSGB by Len Dayton. Yeah, I, ha I, I have many, many years ago. And it was a... There was a uh, big dramatisation of it on the television three or four years ago, wasn't there, Jim? Uh, yeah, yeah, there was. yeah, with the policeman, yeah, the Scotland Yard police. Yeah. So, uh, thank God you were uh, you were never conquered uh, since William uh, the Conqueror. Uh, oh, I don't know. We Dutch. had a Dutch invasion in six. We had a Dutch at Chatham. Yes, yes, yes thank yes. you very much. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we still have a a factory in Holland that made little sugar balls, and it's the the router factory and then I always remember would they have the router sugar at uh, Chatham but they probably won't <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah I know I, but the funny thing between you and us is that we fought each other four times you won twice we won twice and then we decided to draw was good <laughs> and we never went to war again <laughs> um, now Hans um, you, earlier on you were saying that you, you had Andrew Geddes' photo album how did you yeah. get? How did you get to know him? How, how you know? Um, yeah. How does how does a, a, someone make friends with a with a a, a, a veteran? And I, what I love is a guy at Geddes's level. He's super connected, isn't he? If, if he's, you know, he he's obviously someone who's at a lots of these important events. He's in, he's planning Overlord. He's doing all sorts of stuff, isn't he? How do, he's been in North Africa. Exactly, he's been yeah. all, exactly. And and tactical air forces are sort of also where a lot of the really clever people gravitate. Um, in, yeah. in the Royal Air Force, trying to f solve this problem of how you work alongside an army and all that sort of stuff, and they do a yeah. lot of that work uh, uh, in the desert, and then they bring it, they bring it to Europe with them. How did you get to know him? Um, I, I was uh, in 1983. I was planning uh, the first commemoration of the food drops in the Netherlands, 
and uh, I came across the name of Air Commodore Geddes. So I wrote a letter to the REF Personal Management Center in Gloucester, in Inns REF Innsworth, and I said, could you get me in touch with him? And lo and behold, they forwarded my letter to him, and that was the day before computers, of course. And uh, I got a very short letter back. Uh, uh, Hello, old chap. My name is Andrew Geddes. I... Uh, did a few things during the war, and I'm curious what you want to know. Come and see me. <laughs> so I went to Seaford in East Sussex, and I met him. And then it turned out that uh, this man had his house full of boxes with memories. He had little boxes with cards in it, and he called it near squeaks. And that were little cards where he wrote down something that happened, and that started in 1928. Wow. when he landed his Avro 405k on a golf course and destroyed the the, the, the green. <laughs> and, the, and the last story was that he was present when Seiss Inquart was arrested and taken to Luxembourg as a prisoner. In fact, he, he was the first one who flew Black Lysander flights into occupied France before we ever talked about the Black Lysander because... In, 19, uh, in 1939, he was officer commanding number two squadron. They are now at Lossiemouth with uh, typhoons. And they flew Lysanders. And he was stationed in Abbeville and he went through the whole Blitzkrieg and everything. And then he, he went back to, uh, to England and got involved in army cooperation stuff. And um, the man had such a wonderful career even though he was not an RAF officer yeah. because he came from Woolwich the Royal Artillery and he was seconded to the RAF three times in his life and when he retired as an Air Commodore Royal Air Force he still was a major in the Royal Artillery <laughs> <laughs> and the man of course I told you he was involved in the Black Lives Center flights he taught the first pilots like Gordon Scotter and all the others who went into France to pick up resistance people and, and things like that. He went with Marie Cunningham to North Africa during Operation Crusader. He was involved in the planning of D-Day. He made the very first photographs of the landing the morning that the troops landed in Normandy. I, I have the pictures here. He gave me his original pictures. I got all 40 of them. Wow. And there's no one in the world who has these photographs. It's And then, of course, we became friends. Uh, his wife was uh, very ill. She suffered from multiple sclerosis and he he uh, retired early from the REF because he said, she's my mate, I'll take care of her. And otherwise he might very well have become an air chief marshal, mm. but uh, he said that Anstis, his wife, was more important. Uh, then he became a, a civil servant for a while and he was involved in, in the East Sussex County in uh, civil defence and then he retired. He also was the oldest Briton who ever took up hang gliding. <laughs> he jumped off Beachy Hat when he was 67. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, he was a wonderful man. And we became friends. My children called him Grandpa. I called him Sir until he gave me a direct order to get, call him Andrew. Because I've been in the Army Reserve for 35 years and you don't call an Air Commodore Andrew. <laughs> Uh, and he was just a lovely, lovely man. We were very fond of him. And when when he died, uh, even Prince Bernard, he went to see Prince Bernard at Soosdijk Palace. And Andrew uh, was very stiff, you know, and very formal. And Prince Bernard spread out his arms, put his arms around him and said, Andrew, how lovely to see you, my friend. 
and we stayed in the palace and they were just like two former veterans or two veterans who were reminiscing about the old days. Now, he was a great man. I've just published his uh, biography, which will come out by the end of the year. It will be in English. It will be called A Winged Gunner, The Life and Times of Air Commodore Andrew Geddes. And it will describe uh, the time from his birth in 1908 in uh, Belgaum in India until his death in uh, Seaforth, East Sussex and everything in between. Goodness How me. amazing. Well, congratulations. Well I, look for, well, I look forward to reading that. Very yeah, much so. Absolutely. Well, if you, if you send me your email addresses, I'll make sure my publish, publisher sends you a copy so that you can say something nasty about my English writing. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that sounds perfect. Uh, I w- I'd absolutely love to read it. I, I'm, yet again, thank you for, um, you know, you've, you've opened our eyes to something that we knew little about i'm well i'm speaking for you al but i don't know but it's only that i knew little absolutely about. Well, i no, i i i'd heard of operation manor and chow hand but i didn't know i mean uh a, a, anything beyond that that people were fed um hans so much thank you so much for joining us and for sharing for sharing your well uh, it's ours and the listeners will um thank you too i'm sure thanks everybody for listening we'll see you again soon cheerio bye bye <laughs>